You know, sometimes at Christmas, in the moment just after all the gifts have been opened, with a mountain of torn wrapping paper and empty boxes behind them, and a sea of gifts swirling around their feet, some people have this uncanny ability in that lavish moment to actually think about what they didn't get. <laughs> to, to make a mental list of all the things that they really, really wanted, but nope, they're nowhere to be found. We don't want to be people like that, do we? Do we want to be people like that? No. Focused on what we want, what we didn't get, what we think we might need, but that we not, might not really need. Instead, you and I this morning, we've got to focus on all that we have, all God has given us in Christ. He gives us things we need when we need it. And so that needs to be our focus this morning. And throughout this Christmas season, particularly this morning as we come to this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 3, if you have your Bibles open there, I want to ask you to turn, to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 21 through 29. And this is the word of the Lord. Moses is speaking. At that time I commanded Joshua, You have seen with your own eyes all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. The Lord will do the same to all the kingdoms over there where you are going. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. At that time I pleaded with the Lord, O sovereign Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works that you do? Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country and Lebanon. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and look west and north and south and east. Look at the land with your own eyes, since you are not going to cross this Jordan. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land that you will see. So we stayed in the valley near Beth Peor. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now that you would bless the reading and hearing of your word. Spirit of God, give us eyes to see your truth and ears to hear it. Well, Spirit, we pray that you would soften our hearts to receive the truth that you have for us and that you would transform our lives by that truth and that you would cause us, Lord, to focus on all that we have in Christ and all that you have done for us. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. C.S. Lewis watched the wife that he cherished and dearly loved suffer from and eventually succumb to bone cancer at the age of 45 after only three years of marriage. And after his wife, Joy, died, Lewis kept journals. He kept notebooks in which he wrote about the overwhelming grief that he was experiencing over the loss of his wife. And he used those notebooks to to vent, to express his anger toward God, his, his bewilderment, his confusion about everything that he had experienced. 
And those notebooks were compiled into a book that was entitled, is entitled, A Grief Observed. And this is what Lewis wrote in that book. Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. But, so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. C.S. Lewis came through that faith struggle, stronger and more confident in God than when he began. The question for us is, how will you and I react? How will we come through it when God's will for you or for someone else in your life is not what you want? Something with which you don't agree. Something that you think is unjust or unfair. Let's look again at the story of Moses. In verses 21 and 22, Moses here is clearly passing the baton of leadership on to Joshua. And it reminds Joshua of everything that he's seen with his own eyes, the power of God, particularly in these two incredible victories that they have just experienced. And Moses reminds Joshua, the Lord will do the same to all the kingdoms over there where you are going. Where you are going, Joshua. Moses isn't going. Moses won't be going into the promised land. And Moses knows this. And Moses has known this for 40 years. He knew it back when the people of Israel had this uh, horrific failure of faith at Kadesh Barnea, when God said, go and take the promised land, I'm giving it to you, and they refused to go. At that time, Moses said, and this is in chapter 1, verse 37, because of you, the Lord became angry with me and said, you shall not enter either, but your assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it, encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. But the knowledge that he was not going to the promised land doesn't prevent Moses from coming to God again, 40 years later, with this heart-wrenching request. Who knows how many times Moses might have made this request in the course of those 40 years, but, but now it's all or nothing. Because now they stand on the edge of the promised land, these two stunning victories behind them, scores of cities now in their possession. Now it's time to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. And so it's now or never. And Moses tries one last time, Verse 23, at that time, I pleaded with the Lord. And that word pleaded, it's a strong word. It actually is a cry to God to show mercy and compassion. Please, Lord, let me go. Verse 25, let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country in Lebanon. I think that we all here this morning probably Without exception. We're on Moses' side, aren't we? We're rooting here for Moses. Yeah, Lord, please, please let Moses go into the promised land. Seems a simple request to us. One that the Lord should answer. But here's the answer from the Lord. Verse 26. But because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That's enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter. And this is perhaps an unexpected answer. 
from a God that you and I want to believe is a God of grace and mercy and compassion. Why is God being this way? After Moses has been such a faithful servant, Moses did not want to do what God asked him to do when God asked him to do it at the burning bush, but he did it anyway. He appeared boldly before the powerful Pharaoh of Egypt. Moses did become God's representative before him. He did lead the people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. He did patiently deal with the people when they were in the desert, grumbling and complaining. And when the people made a golden calf and worshipped around it. And when they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It was Moses who took that golden calf and threw it in the fire and ground it into powder and threw the powder in the water and made the people drink it. It was Moses who prayed on their behalf. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, listen to what he says. Then blot me out of the book you have written. That's Moses. When God sent his people back in the desert to wander there for 40 years, Moses faithfully led them. And so we wonder, what kind of God is it that would say no to the simple request from this humble, faithful servant? I want us to think about why God may not have answered Moses' prayer in the way Moses wanted it answered. But I want to note this up front, that everything I'm going to say is not a defense of God. Because you know what? God does not need me to defend him. Honestly, God? (laughs) Craig Bailey? Yeah, no, it's not necessary. You know, he's God and we're not. And as it's been said before, when you have a tiger in the cage, all you got to do is open the, the door and the kitty cats flee. And I agree with Charles Spurgeon. You know, he's called the Prince of Preachers. And he said this. I question whether the defenses of the gospel are not sheer impertinences. The gospel does not need defending. If Jesus Christ is not alive and cannot fight his own battles, then Christianity is in a bad state. But he is alive. And we have only to preach his gospel in all its naked simplicity. And the power that goes with it will be the evidence of its divinity. And so it is here. I'm not saying that you and I should not seek understanding. We should. But what we must never lose sight of is that for for whatever reason, God does not allow Moses into the promised land. Because that's a decision made by God, then it is good and it is right and it is just. That's the place where we have to start. If there's misunderstanding or confusion, it's on our part. It's a life situation like the one faced by Moses now that reminds us of our place and our position before God. And we need to be reminded of that. God God doesn't answer to you and to me. We answer to Him. And it's easy to forget that. Because people always put themselves above God. We think, we honestly think this. We think that we have a higher sense of justice and what's right than God does. And we actually think that if we were God, we would do a better job in this world than he's doing. And yet, we don't want to do the little acts of grace and compassion in our own lives. The little things that are just and right. Giving a little something to someone who has nothing. Spending a little time with someone who has no one else. Right things. 
gracious things, compassionate things. We don't do. But let us read a story like this one. And our sense of justice is so offended. We put God on the stand and we require that he justify his acts to us. And if God cannot justify himself in a way that satisfies us, then we say, fine, I will not believe in you. Seems to be the week for C.S. Lewis. But here's another quote from him. This is from another book that he wrote called God in the Dock. And he titled the book in that way because in the modern era, people configure the courtroom quite differently than it ought to be configured. And Lewis writes this. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches the judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. Man is the judge. God is in the dock. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And so it is that people we know say this, I will not believe in a God who dot, 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 fill in the blank. I've had people say to me about the passage that we have read this morning, what kind of a God would let a man like Moses do all that hard work and then not let him just go into the promised land? Why should I believe in a God like that? Well, then it's my turn to ask a question. And my question comes straight from Romans chapter 9, verse 20. But who are you? O man, to talk back to God. What's the answer to that question? Honestly, who are you to talk back to God? Well, I am Reverend Craig Bailey. So what? Well, I'm a successful businessman. I own my own company. So what? Well, I've raised three children and run a home while I worked outside of the home. So what? I'm really smart. I'm really smart. I'm at the top of my class. So what? Well, I'm a college professor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a famous artist. So what? So what? And so what? What credentials does any human being on the face of this earth have that gives them the right to talk back to God? Shall what is formed question the one who formed it? And please, again, don't hear me saying that I'm trying to shut down honest questions about faith. I'm not advocating cutting off discussion or, or, or not being able to, to wonder or ponder about the nature of faith or God. Mary did that when everything was swirling around her at Jesus' birth. There were angels and shepherds and then wise men coming. What is going on? Scripture says that Mary treasured all those things in her heart. And she pondered. She thought about what they meant. We should do that. We should ponder the meaning of our faith and the implications of the grace of God and the gospel and the person of Christ. But listen, calling into question the character of God, standing in judgment of the God of the universe, that's a different matter entirely. What do you know? What does anyone else know more about Moses' situation than God knows? What do you know more about the heart of Moses than God knows? How do you love and care for Moses better than God does? Do you really think the grace and compassion of God had run out for Moses? 
And do we really think that just because Moses didn't get what Moses wanted, then somehow the character of God is flawed? Humanity needs a dose of humility. Humanity needs a dose of humility. Many, many people need to rearrange the courtroom. It is God who is on the bench. It is we who are on the stand. Every one of us will stand before God. And just because a person doesn't believe, that does not make the reality of it go away. Just because a person says to me, Craig, it's fine for you. You believe in all, so that's okay for you. But I don't believe. That doesn't change the reality of the fact that they too will stand before God, the judge of the universe. And when we all stand before God, those who have placed their faith in Christ will be acquitted. God will say to them, not guilty. God will say to them, or you, if it's you, go, go, go. Go live in the freedom of forgiveness. Go live in the righteousness of Christ that I give you. Go. And then when our time on earth is over, he will say to us, come, come home, come to heaven, come share your master's happiness. Let me tell you who this God really is. The one that we and others are so often tempted to question and judge. This is just one sentence that our Westminster Confession of Faith looked throughout Scripture. And this is one sentence that they came up with who God is. God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, infinite in glory infinite in blessedness and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. That's God. I don't possess very many of those qualities myself. I don't know about you. And you and I can do nothing better than to take our proper place, not in judgment of, but in submission to this God. We can do nothing better than to know this God, to have a close, personal relationship with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. So stop looking at what you don't have or, or what you think you should have. Stop worrying about what you don't understand and look at what you do have. What God has given you in Christ. What is yours when you are in the care of the God of the universe? Let's move on and and think further about why it is that Moses did not get to go into the promised land. The passage here, as you you heard when, when it was read, doesn't give us a lot of information to question why. What happened? What went wrong? Why does Moses not get to go into the promised land? And all Moses tells us here as he's telling the story in verse 26, is this, because of you, the Lord was angry at me. It's the same thing he had said back in chapter 1, verse 37. And so Moses links his exclusion from the promised land to the rebellion of the people at Kadesh Barnea. It seems that Moses is excluded from the promised land simply because he is leading this group of sinful, rebellious people. In his excellent commentary, 
J.G. McConville writes this, No clear reason for this is given in Deuteronomy beyond the tantalizing because of you. This leaves no specific reason for the exclusion beyond a kind of solidarity with the people who deserved it, who deserved to be excluded. In his commentary, Peter Craigie writes, Moses would not see the land because, though individually blameless, he had to accept the responsibility for the acts of the rebellious generation at Kadesh Barnea. See, Moses is God's representative. He represents God to the people and he represents the people to God. And so though he is personally without guilt in the rebellion that the people uh, waged at Kadesh Barnea, still he is one with them. Yet another commentator, William Hendrickson, says, Scripture does not view people atomistically as if each were comparable to a grain of sand on the seashore. In Scripture, God deals with community. In the Old Testament, the community of faith. In the New Testament, the church. And God works through representatives. But because we live in the culture that we live in, because most of us are products of the history of a country that has placed emphasis on the individual since its inception, this explanation still doesn't help us very much to feel better about God. How is it fair, we say, that Moses would be punished for the sin he did not commit? How is that just? And aren't we still on the verge of agreeing with C.S. Lewis? So this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Well, far from being close to giving up on God because of this, far from saying I won't believe in a God like this, we should and will be eternally thankful that this is the kind of God He is with this kind of justice. Please turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 5. Take them, open them up, Romans chapter 5. If you're using a Bible in the pew, it's page 798. Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to pick up reading in verse 18, and it's in the middle of an argument that Paul is making about the one man Adam and the one man Jesus. And Paul writes, Consequently, Just as the result of one trespass, and that is Adam's sin, was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous." The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's good news. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now we are glad for God's representative justice, aren't we? Sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Adam, in his sin, becomes the representative for the whole human race. And because of the sin of Adam, sin entered the world and every human being is born in sin. And because of sin, there's death. Death to all people 
because all people sin. But then comes Jesus, the gift of God, born in the stable, died on the cross. The gift of grace of this one now flows to many. And so by one man, Adam, death reigned. Through one man, Jesus, and his gift of righteousness, life reigns. And those who will receive the provision of of God's abundant grace through faith in Christ. One trespass brought condemnation. So one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. See, the point is the solidarity of the human race. The solidarity in sin and death with Adam as our head. But then the solidarity in life through one man, Jesus, our head, our representative. Jesus became obedient to death on a cross for sins he did not commit. And God credits that perfect obedience of Jesus and that perfect righteousness to you and to me when we put our faith in Christ. In God's justice, he says the perfect obedience of Christ the perfect righteousness of Christ, both of which are requirements for you and for me if we are ever going to be in the presence of God. God says, now they belong to you. And when God looks at those who have faith in Christ, He looks at them through Christ. And what He sees, because of His justice and His plan, is the perfect obedience and righteousness of Jesus. But you and I don't deserve it. Is it fair then? Listen, is it fair? According to the standards by which we judge God in this Moses story, that we should be made righteous and have life. Is it fair? No. Because we didn't earn it. But you and I don't say this, Oh God, no thank you. No thank you. Nope. I I don't want the righteousness of Christ. Uh Uh-uh. I didn't earn it. I I didn't live a life of perfect obedience. I didn't. I cannot let Christ represent me. No, 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 no. It's not fair. That is not fair. I didn't do it myself. No, I cannot receive this gift of grace and life. Is that what you say? Is that what you say? That's not what I say. We rejoice in the salvation we have in Christ. The salvation that He earned for us. The salvation that He freely gives to us. We rejoice that in the cross He represented us and took our place. That He hung there and gave His life as our representative, the sinless one, taking on our sins. That on the cross He represented us in death, taking you to death that we deserve to die. We rejoice that He stands before the Father on our behalf. And we rejoice that as he stands, the Father looks at him and and pardons us. We rejoice in that. So let's get back to to the story of Moses for a moment and think about his situation in the light of our good and great and gracious and glorious God. We know this, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are according to, called according to his purpose. And all things means all things, even our sins. Moses was punished for sin whether for his own sin or for the sins of the people. But in that punishment, God was accomplishing his greater purpose for the nation, which is always more important than the individual, just as the church is more important than any one individual within it. 
And if it had been for the glory of God and the good of the people of Israel, for Moses to have led them into the promised land, then Moses would have led them into the promised land. But what was good for the nation of Israel, according to the plan of God, was for Joshua to to lead them into the promised land. Moses had accomplished all God had for him. And it's time now for the next generation. And that's how faith continues. One generation will commend your works to another and another and another and another. How easy to be dependent on Moses. They could see Moses. They had seen him all these years. They could hear him. They followed him as he followed God. How could there possibly be another Moses? Well, there could be. And there must be someone to carry on the faith. Someone to point God's people to God and not to human, uh, to, to any human being and say, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We know what Moses didn't get, but what did he get? Well, he got something much better than the promised land. See, Moses had lost sight for just a moment of what was really important. And his focus shifted. Moses was looking at, and he was consumed by a desire for the land of promise instead of the God of the promise. The promised land, the good gift of God that the people were just about to unwrap, was nothing in comparison to the God who created that land and gave it to them as a gift. And God did not mete out his discipline in anger because he's good and gracious. God lets Moses see the promised land. Go up on the mountain, high on the top of Mount Pisgah, and look north and south and east and west and get this panoramic view of the breathtaking beauty of the promised land. And what Moses sees there will not even begin to compare with where he is going. And I know this for certain. Moses will not mind a bit when he goes to sleep, still on the east side of the Jordan, on the stormy banks, and wakes up having crossed it to the other side. When he stands on the healthful shore where no chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach, where sickness Sorrow, pain, and death are are felt and feared no more. Moses won't mind not have gotten to go into the promised land. And when he opens his eyes on those wide extended plains, where shines one eternal day where God, the sun, forever reigns and scatters night away, Moses might even ask, did I really want to go into the promised land? And when Moses is at rest in the presence of the Lord, he won't mind that God did not make him fight one more battle. No, that's Joshua's job. And having passed through the gates of heaven, Moses won't mind that he did not have to knock down one more city gate to take possession of one more city in the promised land. And so perhaps it's best for Moses that he does not get what he pleaded with God to give him. Because God had something much better for this servant who had served him so long and so faithfully. What are you focused on? The mountain of paper and 
opened gift boxes piled behind you? Are you fixated on what you don't have? What you wish you did have? What you think you deserve? Or are you looking at the treasures of grace that God has heaped, heaped on you and me right now? Are you keeping your focus on the Lord? Christ is to be our consuming passion. Every other focus in our life is secondary to that. Christ is our passion and our focus. Everything else in our life is secondary to that. And what about heaven, your true reward? How often are you thinking about the good things that God has in store for you? God is great. God is good. And God is just. And he knows exactly what you need. And he will give you exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. for your character that we see displayed to us through your word. Father, we do pray that you would forgive us when those times that may come to our minds even now that we have stood in judgment of you. Instead of taking a position of humility and submission to you. Father, we know that you are a God who is good and compassionate and gracious and completely 100% just and all that you do. And so, Lord, I pray that we would view our own lives and our own situations in light of who you are. And that we would know that it is true, Lord, that all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And we don't have to understand, Lord, and we don't even have to make the assessment that what we see in our lives is is even fair. Lord, we know that you know best. And whatever it is that we're going through, we go through it, Lord Jesus, with you by our side, with you, uh, uh, your spirit living in our hearts. And with that knowledge, Lord, and that reality, we can face whatever it is that you have for us. So help us focus, Lord, uh, on you, uh, your goodness, your glory, your grace. Help us focus on what it is that you have given to us. And with our minds so occupied with the enormity of what that is, Lord, we'll have little time to ponder what we don't have. So we thank you and praise you for who you are and what you have given us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.